And I want to invite you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. By the way, how many of you met somebody that you had never met before? Go ahead, raise your hand. Okay, look at that. I love that. That's good. That's what we're talking about. That's what we want to see happen during this time. And uh, how many of you remembered how much you love somebody, like just talking to them, and you were just like, I just really like this person a lot, right? Yeah, okay. Well, apparently, if the person sitting next to you didn't raise their hand, right? Don't take that personally. But apparently, they weren't thrilled with their conversation with you, but... But anyway, thanks for doing that. And um, as you can see, we're going to be taking communion here later, uh, but we've gotten to a little bit of a, a new routine here when it comes to communion is wanting to have our message uh, before communion, uh, just to prepare our hearts for taking uh, the Lord's Supper together. And so I want to read a passage and look at a passage with you this morning that I trust God will use to get us off to a good start a strong start for the new year, kind of kickstart the new year together. And it's 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 24 through 27, a passage that I'm sure is very familiar to you. Uh, if not, it will become one of your favorite passages uh, in the Bible. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 24, Paul writes, Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They then do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. Therefore, I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air. But I discipline my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified." Father, thank you again for giving us this treasure, this book, uh, Lord, that uh, is our very life. Jesus said that uh, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of your mouth. And so we have this book for sustenance, for life. Uh, and so, Lord, I pray as we come before this text that you would humble us that you would open up our minds to understand what Paul was saying here and uh, to see how it relates to our lives, how we should make application of it uh, in our lives. And so would your spirit illuminate us and uh, encourage us and convict us and ultimately conform us more to the likeness of Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen. Well, uh, years ago, I was with a group of people, and we were sitting around in a circle talking about various things, getting to know one another, and one of the subjects that came up was, what, what is your favorite time of year? And uh, while the others were sharing why they like springtime, or why they like summertime, or the fall, or Christmas time, I was struggling to decide, well, man, I, what, what is my favorite time of, of year? And then all of a sudden, the conversation was you know, everyone in the conversation looked to me and said, well, what's your favorite time of year? And I sheepishly said, January. <laughs> and they kind of looked at me strange. Um, but then I tried to explain myself because for me, January signifies a new beginning. It represents, at least for me, an opportunity to make a fresh start with renewed focus, with renewed energy. It's a time for reflection. It's a time for looking back at the past year, and then it's a time for resolving to improve or change certain things in your life for the future. I'm sure some of you are like me. Uh, you've probably already been thinking through commitments that you want to make, need to make, resolutions maybe have already been made in the past few days, whether it's to lose weight. That's always Number survey says, number one thing, what is resolution? Lose weight, exercise more, um, be punctual, be on time for things for a change, um, be less stressed, spend more time with the family, get out of debt, um, quit some bad habit. Unfortunately, we all know too well that many, if not most of these re resolutions will be short-lived. Uh, we get off to a great start. For the first few days or weeks, uh, some of us are even able to maintain our resolve for several months, but sooner or later, 
the gym thins out again, right? Those of you that go to a gym, you know, you know you're, you're fighting the crowds right now, right? Uh, don't worry, it'll thin out again some, somewhere here in the next few weeks. Uh, everybody will realize, ah, I don't really want to do this. I enjoy sleeping in more than I do waking up and working out. And, and um, we do, we tend to find ourselves back where we started, stuck in the same old ruts that we'd resolved to get out of. And this text that we have before us this morning from Paul's letter to the believers in Corinth holds the key to making New Year's resolutions lifelong realities. Making New Year's resolutions lifelong realities. As you know, uh, Paul often used athletic analogies in his letters to describe the Christian life. My wife always makes fun of me because everything's always a sports analogy. I'm always thinking of sports or something to do with athletics. And well, that was Paul. And uh, of course, he was living and ministering in the Greco-Roman culture, uh, which was obsessed with sports, much like our culture is today. In those days, uh, there was a huge emphasis on physical training and the pursuit of winning athletic events. In fact, the Olympics originated in Greece. And so Paul harnessed this cultural phenomenon and applied it to the way that every follower of Christ should live their lives. Listen to some of the references in Paul's letters to athletics and specifically running. Galatians chapter 5 verse 7, you were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? Uh, Philippians 2.16, Paul says this, that we should hold fast the word of life so that in the day of Christ I will have reason to glory because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5, also if anyone competes as an athlete, he does not win the prize unless he competes according to the rules. And then, of course, the last uh, thing he said, what the last thing he wrote, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7, I have fought the good fight and I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. One of my favorite references is 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7. Paul said this, but have nothing to do with worldly fables, fit only for old women. On the other hand, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness, for bodily discipline is only of little value, but godliness is profitable for all things since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance, for it is for this we labor and strive because we fixed our hope on the living God who is the Savior of all men, especially of believers. And so we're used to, accustomed to Paul telling us to discipline ourselves. That word discipline there in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7 is the word gymnaze in the Greek, which is where we get the English word what? Yes, gymnasium, right? Or gymnastics. And so the, the, the word there, he's talking about training ourselves, talking about exercise. He's, he's referring to the rigorous and strenuous training that an athlete undergoes in order to compete at a, at a winning level. And so Paul expected Timothy and every believer to exercise the same kind of discipline in order to become a godly Christian as an athlete does to become a great champion. And, and by the way, before we get into this message on discipline or self-control, I want to remind you that I think it's better for us to refer to this concept as dependent discipline. Dependent discipline. Since discipline or self-control is not something we can produce or maintain in our own strength or through our own willpower. In fact, one of the characteristics of unbelievers is that they're without self-control. Second Timothy chapter 3, verse 3, Paul is listing some of the characteristics of ungodly people, those without Christ. And he says in verse 3, they're unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips without self-control. So by nature, we lack self-control. We don't have it, and therefore God must produce it in us, and he does that 
by invading our lives by the Holy Spirit, with the Holy Spirit, and it's the Holy Spirit who produces self-control in our lives. We know from Galatians 5.23 that the fruit of the Spirit is what? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, I'm forgetting a few, but the last one is what? Self-control. And so it's a fruit of the Spirit. And furthermore, we also need to remember the words of Christ, John 15, 5, apart from me, you can do what? Nothing. And also, Paul said, Philippians 4, 13, I can do all things in my own strength. What did Paul say? No, I can all, do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And then in Colossians chapter 1, verse 29, Paul said that for this purpose also I labor, striving according to his power, which mightily works within me. And so let's make sure we keep in mind what we're talking about this morning is not just discipline, not just self-discipline and self-control, it's dependent discipline that God grants us by his grace through the person and work of Jesus Christ. Well, back to 1 Corinthians chapter 9, in order for us to understand these verses, we need to take a moment and set them in their proper context. And there's a wider context, and then there's an immediate context that we need to understand. The wider context is that Paul was writing to a group of immature believers uh, in the very immoral city of Corinth, and uh, he he called them fleshly, uh, that they were acting in the flesh. Uh, they were um, milk drinkers rather than drinking solid food or eating solid food. This is back in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. And, uh, and so he was exhorting them to grow up. Stop, quit being immature babies uh, in Christ. And uh, so they had come to know Christ, but they were still struggling to overcome some of the old habit patterns that they developed before they were saved. You probably remember what he said in 1 Corinthians 6. Um, He says, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Such were some of you. He just described the people sitting in the congregation. He says, but you were washed, you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. And so they were fighting against their old fleshly habits. They were also fighting amongst themselves and not dealing with certain sins within the church. One of their main problems was they misunderstood their liberty in Christ. And so they showed no restraint in indulging their appetites, their passions, And they showed no concern or consideration for the spiritual well-being of those around them. And so in chapter 8, Paul confronted those who were eating meat offered to idols and causing others to stumble. Verse 13 of chapter 8, Therefore, if food causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again, so that I will not cause my brother to stumble. And so Paul went on in chapter 9 to talk about how he sacrificed his freedom. He limited his liberties, if you will. He laid aside his rights and practiced self-denial as an apostle. And the reason why he did that was so that he wouldn't be a stumbling block to anybody, but be able to gain the widest possible audience to hear the gospel. Notice verses 22 and 23. To the weak I become, became weak that I might Win the week, I become all things to all men, so that I may by all means save some. I do all things for the sake of the gospel, so that I may become a fellow partaker of it. And so now he, in verses 24 through 27, illustrated what he was talking about in chapters 8 and 9. And at the same time, he was introducing what he was about to talk about in chapter 10. If you're familiar with chapter 10, it's going to school on the Israelites' mistakes in the wilderness and how they forfeited their uh, strategic role as God's witness nation because of their sin. 
And so this, is, this uh, section, verses 24 to 27, serves a very transitional role in uh, bringing uh, Paul from the first part of the book to the second part of the book. But what I want us to see in these four verses is how Paul acted like you could call a seasoned story athletic coach. He's played countless seasons. Uh, he has a storied history. He's a legend. And, uh, and he used two tax- tactics here to motivate his readers, the Corinthians and us, to be spiritual winners. And so I, I like us, the way I, when I read this passage, I, I get the picture in my mind of sitting in a locker room before the biggest game of my life, and there's the legendary Coach Paul. And he is giving us a pep talk to motivate us to get out there and win. And what are his two tactics? And coaches have certain tactics, techniques that they use to to rile up their players, to fire up their players, right? Well, the first tactic is exhortation in verses 24 and 25. And you notice all the pronouns there are, are you. Do you not know that those who run and race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win. Um... Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control all things. Then they, they then do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So he's exhorting um, his readers, number one. But then secondly, a second tactic is what we could call exemplification. Notice the pronoun shifts to I in verses 26 and 27. Therefore, I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air, but I discipline my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached others, I myself will not be disqualified. So we've got these two tactics here. Number one is exhortation. Number two is exemplification. Let's look first of all at tactic number one, exhortation. And notice how Paul urged the Corinthians and pleaded with them about two things. He said, first of all, you must have direction to win, verse 24, and secondly, you must have discipline to win, verse 25. First of all, you must have direction to win, verse 24. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win. That word race there is the word stadion in the Greek. Again, from where we get our English word stadium. Uh, it's talking about a racetrack. And so what Paul most likely had in mind here was not the Olympics. Um, that's probably what comes to our mind if we're thinking about this is the Greek culture. Um, he was probably thinking about the Isthmian Games, which were held every two years just outside the city of Corinth. So this was an extravagant competition, second only to the Olympics in that day, Uh, and there were numerous events. There was uh, wrestling, there was boxing, there was javelin throwing, there was discus, there was jumping, and there was running. And so he says, do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Only one wins the race. Now... It's important for us to understand Paul was not talking about salvation here. This is not the win. You're going for the win. It's not getting to heaven. That's not what he's talking about. This is more uh, serving, okay? This is not getting to heaven, but getting rewarded in heaven, okay? And he says that, hey, you all know. You've seen the Isthmian Games. You've watched it. You you know how it works, Uh, Those who come, who run in the race, only one wins. There's only one winner. And you should run in a way that you may win. In other words, the goal of competing is winning. As Vince Lombardi said famously, winning isn't everything, it's what? It's the only thing. That was Paul's mindset. Hey, we're here to win. We don't practice just to come in here and lose. We practice to win. 
Now again, not to be, allow this to become confusing in our minds. We're not racing against each other. I'm not racing against you. You're not racing against me. We're not racing against one another here. We're racing against what? Ourselves. We're racing against the distractions that the world places around us. We're hurtling the obstacles that Satan puts in front of us. We're resisting the sinful desires of our flesh. Each of us is running our own race against the clock, if you will, and, and the goal is to be as much like Jesus as possible. So your biggest competition is the person that looks back at you in the mirror, okay? That's who you're competing against, is yourself. And ultimately, what you want to see looking back at you in the mirror, from that mirror, is who? Jesus, right? 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 3, verse 18, but we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed in the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. And Paul was passionate about becoming more like Jesus, becoming as much like Jesus as humanly possible. In Philippians chapter 3, verse 13, he says, not that I've already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Why did Jesus save me? It was to make me like him. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And I think why a passage like 1 Corinthians 9 is so important because if you look around, there's a lot of Christians who live their lives like they're out on a nice little stroll in the park. They got their expensive workout clothes, their designer workout clothes on, and you know, they got their, 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 you know, their AirPods in, and they got the, their playlist going, and they got their dog on the leash, and it's, it's really, are you really like out there to like rigorously exercise, or are you just kind of out there just kind of going for a casual jog or a relaxing walk, right? There's no direction. There's, they're wandering around aimlessly. They're going nowhere fast. And so we need to realize, based on what Paul's saying here, is that we are in a rigorous race as Christians that requires single-minded focus and a clear goal. We need to have direction. Not just wake up and say, well, I wonder what today's going to hold. You know, no, we've got to have a purpose. We've got to have Intent, we got to have our eyes fixed on someone or something, right? But direction isn't enough. Notice he says, not only do we need direction, we also have to have discipline. Discipline, verse 25. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. That word compete there is the word agonizomai, which sounds very much like our word what? agonize, right? So there's agony. We're agonizing. The, the, the idea here is that we're exerting great physical energy that involves sweat and pain. This is not a half-hearted effort. And he says, everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control. Some of you might have the New International Version, and it says this, that you go into strict training, so the idea here is that you, that you discipline yourself. The, uh, another word I, I like to use is self-mastery. Self-mastery. In other words, you master yourself rather than giving in to yourself, into your desires, into your impulses or your indulgences. And uh, the Isthmian Games, which again I think was in Paul's mind when he penned this, uh, 10 months prior to those games, athletes had to follow a rigorous schedule and follow a regimented diet. And in fact, they were required to spend the last month in Corinth under the strict supervision of the judges. And so notice he says, everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in a few things or in most things. What does your Bible say? In all things, not just some things, not just most things, but all things. We, we need to exercise self-control in every area of our lives, what goes into our minds, 
what goes into our mouths, what goes into our ears, what goes into our nose, our eyes, our veins, where we go, what we watch, what we listen to, what we think about, what we eat, when we wake up, when we go to bed. That's what he's talking about. Because as a Christian, everything we do in our lives relates to and affects our relationship to Christ. That's why Paul said in the next chapter, 1 Corinthians 10, 31, he says, whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So Paul picked out the two, probably the two most mundane things that all of us do every day and we rarely even think about how it relates to our relationship with God is what we eat and what we drink. He says that even in those two things, what is seemingly mundane, inconsequential things, you need to be thinking how you can do that in a way that glorifies and honors and pleases God. I'm sure most of you are familiar with Jonathan Edwards' uh, famous 70 resolutions. He was like 19 years old, and he, he made a list of 70 resolutions. They weren't just New Year's resolutions. They were, they were life resolutions. And number 20 is this, resolved to maintain the strictest temperance in eating and drinking. Number 40, Resolve to inquire every night before I go to bed whether I've acted the best way I possibly could with respect to eating and drinking. Imagine that. Jonathan Edwards pillow his head at night and think about, think through what he had eaten that day and drank that day and, and considered whether or not that was glorifying to God. In fact, he was an interesting cat, man. He, he did a lot of kind of strange things. You know, he'd go off on a horse ride and he'd come back with little notes pinned all over his coat because you know, like before the days of post-its, right? You had to figure out a way to keep track of things. And he had so many thoughts that would come to his mind. He's a brilliant guy. He would come back from his horse rides with all these little things tacked all over him uh, that he would take off and write down. Um, he also experimented with food. And, and because he spent the majority of his day studying, he wanted to be able to stay alert and not fall asleep and get drowsy. So he would experiment with certain kinds of food. And if he found out that a certain kind of food made him more drowsy, um, or sleepy, he wouldn't eat it just so he could stay alert. That's kind of the guy he was. The, the point is, everything we do impacts our performance as a Christian, either positively or negatively, either helps us or it hinders our spiritual progress and growth. And I think you can tell when a person is serious about their relationship with Christ, when they're willing to give up freedoms and deny themselves pleasures that they have the right to enjoy. In other words, they've allowed, or excuse me, they've, they've, attained, they've attained a level of spiritual maturity where they're not just making decisions between what's, what's good and bad, but they're thinking about what's good and best. Paul talked about this in, in the same context, 1 Corinthians 6, 12, all things are lawful for me. In other words, I can do Anything I want, as long as it's pleasing to the Lord, right? But not all things are profitable. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. In other words, there are certain things that it's not wrong or sinful to do, but if you're controlled by it, it is. First uh, Corinthians ten twenty three: All things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful, but not all things edify. In other words, is this really helping me? Is this really building me up and making me more like Christ? It's not necessarily wrong, but it's not really helping me be more like Jesus. It's not getting me closer to my goal. And then, of course, Hebrews 12.1, another classic running text. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Interesting, the writer of Hebrews makes a distinction between those things that are sin, that entangle us, that we need to lay aside, but there's also things that could qualify simply as encumbrances. They're not necessarily inherently sinful, but they just encumber us. They just slow us down in the race. And so... I mean, if you want to show up at the next 5K with, you know, a big trench coat on and your cowboy boots, go for it. Have fun with that. 
It's not against the rules to wear those things, right? But if you're serious about, you know, winning that race or, you know, finishing it in, a, you know, your personal goal time, you're probably not going to want to be wearing cowboy boots and a trench coat, right? You're going to want to strip down and get uh, as aerodynamic as possible. So back to our text here. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. So again, the analogy's perfect, right? An athlete. We, we know that any serious athlete has to maintain a disciplined lifestyle if they want to win. And so they abstain from certain foods. They go to bed typically early, and they wake up early, and they practice for hours a day. And so how does all this apply to our spiritual lives, right? Well, how's that going when the alarm goes off in the morning? You have all these good intentions. I'm going to get up at this time, and then the alarm goes off, and the body says, no, not yet. That snooze is just there, just an arm's reach away. Um... You might have to be creative. If you're serious about getting up and spending time with the Lord and it just seems like your, your body just, you know, keeps craving sleep and wanting to stay in bed, put your alarm clock on the other side of the room. Uh, our son had to get creative uh, in college and so he found this app that your alarm goes off and you have to answer math problems to make it go off. So you can't just hit snooze. You got to actually start thinking and get your mind engaged and it won't go out. It keeps ringing until you solve the math problems. And uh, sometimes he solves the math and puts it back down and goes back to sleep. But the point is be creative with those kinds of things. Um, sometimes we have a hard time missing a meal to fast so that we can pray, have a little extra time of prayer. If we have a, a matter that's burdening our heart, we say, hey, you know, the Bible talks about fasting and praying, and certain situations aren't going to be resolved unless we fast and pray. And so sometimes we have a hard time missing a meal or saying no to something. Um, or how about your schedule is so busy, you're, you're just doing so many things, and you got this, and you got that, and you got your job, and you got your stuff with your kids, and it's, it's hard to find time to come to church on a regular basis let alone serve, getting plugged in, going to grow group, right? Making time for things that matter most. Rather than being controlled by your schedule, control your schedule. Now, obviously, there's things that are out of your control, right? That things come up and you have to adapt and be flexible. But if you don't live according to a schedule of some sort, somebody else will schedule your life for you or something else will schedule your life for you. I think too many Christians are in a couch potato, easy chair mindset when it comes to living the Christian life and that's why they're spiritually out of shape they're huffing and puffing along in their Christian life. And if we're lazy and apathetic, we cannot, we will not win the Christian race. Regardless of how many good intentions we might have, how many goals we set, we'll never reach our full potential in Christ without this one thing, and that is self-control, self-discipline. Which again is something that we cannot produce or maintain in and of ourselves in our own strength or through our own willpower. It has to come through the person and work of Jesus Christ in our lives through the Holy Spirit. We'll give you a homework assignment. Some of you may have already picked this up, but I put a little article, just a one-page article on the back tables that I want to encourage all of you to grab one as you leave today, if you haven't already got one. It's an article called Training for the Contest by John MacArthur. And uh, it's, a, it's a summary of a message 
that I remember him preaching when I was a student at the Master's College, Master's University now, 30 plus years ago. And I can almost remember where I was sitting in the gymnasium where they held chapel, and he got up and said, today I want to talk about self-control. And uh, he, he talked a little bit about what the text said, but then he said, now let me give you some practical suggestions to develop self-discipline, self-control. And I'll never forget the first time, first thing he said was, go back to your dorm room and clean it. Go back and clean your room. And everybody laughed. But it was no laughing matter because I saw some of the dorm rooms of some of the students there. And, and they were like, a, you know, a, a bomb went off in there. And so his point was, hey, clean your space, get organized. He said things like, Use your time wisely. Find ways to be edified rather than merely entertain. Pay attention to small things. Accept extra responsibility. Once you start something, finish it. Keep your commitments. Tell yourself no from time to time. Just some very practical reminders of how to develop this rare quality of self-discipline or self-control. I would highly commend this little article to you, and I would invite you uh, to join in a commitment that I made with my son that we are going to read this once a week this year. It takes five minutes probably to read through this little article, but it's just something you can tuck in the front of your Bible and just pull it out and to be reminded uh, that, hey, we're in a contest. We're in a race. We're in a competition here, uh, and it's called the Christian life, and uh, we need to keep our eye on the prize, right? And uh, that's why Paul said that we need to have both direction and discipline so that we will win the prize. Notice verse 25. He says, they then do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So he's referring to these guys that would show up every two years in Corinth for the Isthmian Games, and they were making all those sacrifices and working uh, so hard for what? To receive a perishable wreath. And, and that was the prize back in the day, was this wreath that they would put on your head, and it was made out of pine leaves or uh, pine branches, or, you ready for this, celery leaves. And so that was the big deal, right? That was the most coveted honor in the Greek sporting world, was getting a crown of celery, which would eventually wilt and wither away, along with the honor and the glory that it represented, and we know that. Medals tarnish and the memory of past champions fades away. I mean, when's the last time you thought of Mark Spitz or Eric Hyden or Peggy Fleming or Mary Lou Retton, right? These were, these were big names back in the day. Well, we don't ever think about them now. All these athletes disciplined themselves for years so they could get a piece of metal, a gold medal, and some momentary praise or get to wear a bunch of celery on their head back in those days, Right? How much more should we discipline ourselves since we're striving for an imperishable reward? That's what Paul says. They do it to receive a, a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. And Paul could have been thinking about or talking about eternal life here, right? The life that lasts forever. 1 Peter 1, 4 and 5, 4 talks about how we have the hope of eternal life, this imperishable gift, no one can take it away from us. But I think based on the context, uh, he was probably not referring to eternal life here. He was probably referring to the souls of men and women who were saved and sanctified through his preaching of the gospel. He's talking about, the context here is winning souls for Christ. Again, verse 16, for if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of, for I'm under compulsion, for woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. And then again, we already read this, but in verse 22, I become all things to all men so that I may all, by all means save some. In Paul's letter to the Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 19 he says, for who is our hope, our joy, or crown of exaltation? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus at his coming? For you are our glory and joy. That's the, that's the prize that no one could take away from Paul is all these people that God had used him to lead to Christ. He said, you're my crown, you're my joy. 
And everything Paul did in his life was directed towards winning people to Christ, and so he disciplined himself so he could win as many people to Christ as possible by as many means as possible, and he was exhorting us to do the same. And so that's tactic number one, is exhortation. Tactic number two is exemplification. Verses 26 and 27, and like any good coach, Paul didn't tell his players to do anything that he hadn't already done or was not willing to do himself. He held himself to the same standard he held his players to. He was not the the overweight coach on the sidelines barking out orders while, you know, the team's running sprints and he's eating Little Debbie's and drinking Dr. Pepper, right? He's not that guy. And so he was able to motivate his readers to win by his own example. And so, first of all, he, he shows his own personal direction. Verse 26 Therefore, I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air. In other words, he exhorted us to to make sure we run in such a way that we may win. He says, well, that's what I'm doing. I run in such a way as not without aim. I've got a goal. I'm not just out there running aimlessly. And I don't box without landing punches. I'm I'm not just... Just shadow boxing here with some imaginary opponent. So Paul was just simply saying, listen, I'm wasting no time, no effort. I'm not just flailing around, wasting a bunch of uh, useless energy. When he threw a punch, he connected every time. He made every shot count. And in light of what we're talking about here, a, a race or a boxing match... Those are short, typically, aren't they? And so it's critical that you redeem the time. There's no time to waste doing frivolous, unimportant things that have no eternal value. Every word, every action, every decision must be strategic and effective for the cause of winning souls to Christ. So Paul talks about his own personal direction, but then he also talks about his own personal discipline. He had exhorted us there in verse 25, to exercise self-control in all things. He says, but I, verse 27, discipline my body and make it my slave so that after I've preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. Some of you may have a, an older translation, maybe the New King James or King James that says, but I buffet my body and make it my slave. That's what I tell my wife when I'm walking out the door to go to the gym. I'm going to buffet my body. Make it my slave. That word buffet literally means to beat black and blue. To to strike under the eye. Paul says, hey, you know what? I give myself a black eye. Now, obviously, that's not what he did. He was simply illustrating how radically and rigorously he disciplined himself. And he knew that his main Opponent was himself, his lazy, selfish body that was always seeking to indulge and satisfy itself. And he said, I make it my slave, my doulos. In other words, I've captured myself. And I treat myself like a slave. I I lead my body around like it's my captive. I keep it under control. How about you? Are you a slave to your body or is your body your slave? There's a good quote about that on the bottom of the application questions you can look at later. What motivated Paul to be so directed, to be so disciplined? I like how Paul here pulled back his tough exterior, that tough coach persona and lets us get a peek into his heart. There there was a private motivation that drove him. Notice he says, I discipline my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. After I have preached 
to others. The word there is keruso, which means to proclaim or to herald. And this is um, this word comes from the root word kerux, which was the herald at the games. The guy who would call out the names of the competitors and explain the rules of the race and then announce the names of those who won and also expose those who were disqualified. That was the herald. He says, after I've preached to others, I've, after I've served as the herald, that I myself will not be disqualified. Adakimas, fail the test. And this word was used in the Greek games to describe when, when all the runners were personally examined after the race to see if they had run fairly, if it was found that they had, been, that they had competed illegally or won unfairly, they would lose their prize and be driven, driven from the games in utter disgrace and they were considered adakimas. In other words, the shame of being DQ'd because you were doping or you were doing something that you shouldn't have been doing. And see, Paul understood that as an apostle, God had called him to be a herald of the truth, but he also considered himself a runner. He wasn't above us. He wasn't above the Corinthians. He was running right alongside all of us. And his greatest fear was that after serving in that privileged position of the herald who declared the rules of the games, that he himself would be disqualified for breaking the rules himself. And again, he's not talking about losing his salvation here. He's talking about losing the the privilege of serving in the role of a spiritual leader, preaching the gospel, that God would put him on the shelf because he was no longer useful to God in that ministerial role for which he'd been called to serve. And sadly, that happens to some of those who are in spiritual leadership, pastors and elders, ministry heads, who are so busy helping everyone else run the Christian life, they neglect their own relationship with the Lord and they end up disqualifying themselves from serving in the role of a spiritual leader, either morally or financially, or maybe their family. And I get that, because as a pastor, I daily live with the reality that no matter how godly others may think I am, or perceive me to be, no matter how faithfully I may preach God's word, no matter how many people I may impact, if I'm not living out the biblical truth that I'm teaching, then I will lose the privilege of doing what God's called me to do. The bottom line here of this passage, if you're not a directed runner and a disciplined runner, you will be a disqualified runner. If you're not a directed runner and a disciplined runner, you will be a disqualified runner. Why this passage? Why this Sunday? Well, I don't know how your holidays typically go, but it seems like the majority of us probably get out of our regular routines and out of, um, you know, our discipline, self-control goes out the window. Um, We tend to stay up late, sleep in, we get out of the habit of spending time in God's word, we end up not going to church like we we normally do, we kind of take a spiritual vacation. And so this is the time of year to to get back on track spiritually, it's time for us to get refocused, it's time for us to get recommitted to being as much like Christ as possible so God can use us to reach as many people for Christ as possible. And just to make it really practical, where where can we start here? What what do we need to to discipline ourselves to do? Well, how about this? Read the Bible every day. Pray throughout the day, continuously. Attend church regularly, 
engage, don't just show up and sit, engage in the body of Christ on a consistent basis. Get involved. And witness every time God grants you an opportunity. And remember, being disciplined is not the goal. So you can show up and go, I was more disciplined this week than I was last week, Pastor. I'm disciplined now. I really have exercise in self-control. No, the goal is godliness. Discipline is simply a means to an end. Discipline yourself for the purpose of what? Godliness. And the spiritual disciplines, the the reading the Bible and praying and going to church and sharing the gospel, these are just means that God has ordained to help us become more godly people, to become more like Christ, who makes it all possible through the sacrifice he made for us when he died on the cross in our place, which we're about to celebrate and remember this morning. Let me invite you to bow your heads and close your eyes, and I'm going to invite the gentlemen who are going to serve us to come. And as they come, I just want to encourage you to use this first communion of 2020 to thank God for making it possible to overcome your sinful tendencies, your sinful habits through the person and work of Jesus Christ, which this ceremony represents. And that you would use this quiet time as the plates are passed among us and the bread is taken and as the cup is taken to refocus, to recommit, to ask the Lord to help you live in the realm of dependent discipline and that he would grant you the self-control, self-discipline you need to become a more godly person. And if you're sitting here this morning and you're not a Christian, you're not even in the race, And we want to encourage you to get in the race. And you don't get in the race by taking communion. You get in the race by repenting of your sin and receiving Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And I would encourage you to do that as these uh, plates are passed by you. Just let them pass you by and just you focus on confessing your sin and your waywardness from the Lord and confessing your faith in Christ's death and resurrection is the only way that you can be made right with him and commit your life to follow and obey Jesus as your Lord and Savior.